You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Three things about now going home. You know, the seminar business, um, we were just saying backstage that, and I don't mean it to be disrespectful, but I see we're back to LaGuardia. Um, there was a day in this business eh, 20, 25 years ago when you would do four days starting at 8 o'clock in the morning and ending at 2 o'clock in the morning, and nobody would you know, be wearing out or be tired. They would just, they would want more. And um, I think sort of everybody has been conditioned. You probably can't even see the time of that. Um, everybody has sort of been conditioned to click from one thing to the other and do things a little faster, and so those days are gone. So um, I do think toward the end of this thing, you guys are sort of, I got enough, you know. Uh, and I don't blame you. But So when you go home from a seminar, um, I even have in my consulting days, there are people who come for a day and then they stay in a hotel for a day after that if they have staff with their staff just to sort of work on what we did during the day before they go home and re-enter whatever normal day-to-day -day insanity they have in their operation. And... Um, I think anytime you come and you spend time in a different environment and you spend money to be here and you got a bunch of notes however you took them, most of you look like you're still taking notes on paper, but you got notes however, however it is that you took them and if you took them with a line drawn down the middle of the page, that's wonderful, but you got more action items than you're ever going to do. But in any case, you are going to re-enter the real world, um, if not tomorrow, Monday and re-enter the place where there is a conspiracy kind of against you getting anything done. So, uh, three thoughts for you on, on going home, right? So, one of those has to do with what you do about you. And we are sort of consistently our own worst enemies. Um, you have to, you didn't change in three days, so kind of whatever you brought here in terms of who you are, that's who you're going home with too. And if you brought any dissatisfactions with you or any obstacles, some of it does have to do with your own behavior, um, not really with anything else. And so, I do think you have to try and hold yourself very accountable for the time that you spent here and whatever information you gathered up and whatever resources you bought and take the time to lay out a plan with deadlines of when you are going to implement what. You know, I often make this point in the year after I was born, in 1955, the Social Security Administration started tracking stats, which at the time they only tracked mail uh, because we were still in the madman 
man goes off, earns money, woman stays home for the most part. And so they track male, uh, and they track to the consensus retirement age then, which was 65. And so their stats were follow any 100 people from uh, the start of their working lives at age 20 to the end of their working lives at age 65. And here's what you would find. You would find 1% had become rich. That one percenter thing, by the way, is perfectly real that you hear everybody complaining about. It's, it's exactly right. 4% would have become financially secure, meaning they were going to run out of life before they completely ran out of money. 15% uh, were okay, but they still had to work. They needed earned income. 30% needed some kind of assistance just to get by. Uh, family, friends, church, etc. Uh, 20% were completely dead broke, and 30% were dead. So that is 1955. That is a long damn time ago. And here's the only thing that's changed. So the same stats compiled in 2010, none of the top 20% numbers have changed at all. The only thing that's really changed is the ratio between dead and dead broke because life expectancy has expanded. So the broke people are living longer. But, 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 but the rest of the stats haven't changed at all in all of those years. And that should be amazing to people because think of everything else that has changed since 1955. You hold in your hand or it's laying on the desk in front of you or maybe it's in your pocket uh, if you're exceptionally well-behaved, but you have at least one little device with you which has a room full of crap condensed into it. It's got a camera in it. It's got a typewriter in it. It's got a file cabinet in it. It's got an encyclopedia in it. Hell, it's got the whole library in it. It's got a communication device in it. It's got graphic production in it. It's got video production in it. It's got that little, think of how much easier it has gotten to access information and to start things or add to things that make money. The ease, the access, the variety of things. So if you wanted to make money in 1955 on weekends and you had some kind of craft that you did, you made something. I remember vaguely for a few years my mother knitted Barbie clothes and sold them. So you had some kind of craft, and you wanted to make money with it. What were your choices in 1955? Flea markets, very good. You could go to the flea market, the swap meet. That's exactly what you could do. You could sell stuff to friends and neighbors, right? Classified ads, maybe, yeah. Right? Think of what you got, eBay, Etsy. You have to leave your house. So all of that has changed dramatically. When I hear, you know, well, I can't, it's just too much work to do a newsletter. It's too much work to do a complicated direct mail campaign. Six steps, oh my God. What we had to do just to get a letter done in the 1970s and get it in the mail compared to what you can do 
I mean, people here did things from one day to the next in their business via their little doohickey that made money. They sent out emails, they posted something to Facebook. How many of you here did something while you were here that actually generated income? Raise your hands. Now, let everybody look around at them. Don't look at me, because you can't learn anything looking at me. Keep them up for a second. Look at that. Right? See, that was impossible in 1955. If you were at a seminar, you were at a seminar, period. End of story. So all this has changed, and yet the facts and figures of financial outcomes have not really changed at all. Isn't this astonishing? The horrible mess in Baltimore is nearly a duplicate of the horrible mess in Baltimore that occurred in 1967. In that amount of time, however, $100 million has been poured into those four neighborhoods in Baltimore that we've been seeing on TV into education, into housing grants, into all sorts of stuff to change that, and kind of it's the same. I mean, yeah, it was a CVS store they burnt down, and in 1967 it was something else, but it was a store right there on the same corner that got burnt down in 1967. The reason why this is all so, and why all attempts to affect change by external force don't work very well is because these numbers, these numbers reflect behavior. So they are largely unaffected by changes in technology. They are largely unaffected by changes in variety of opportunity. Business populations, by the way, work pretty much the same way. So if you take just about any group of business people. So, you know, everybody in here belongs to some niche. You're a chiropractor, you're a dentist, you're a shoe repair person, you're a restaurant owner, you're an insurance salesperson, whatever. I, I have clients who are in a hundred or so of those niches, and I've done in-depth work in 20 of them, and I swear to you. So every niche thought leader, by the way, tends to think their group is worse than everybody else's. Right? That's greener pastures in reverse. So one of the conversations I have all the time with the niche leaders is they say to me, I work with dentists, and man, are they stupid. They're like, I sure wish I worked with X, like so-and-so, because my guys are a lot dumber than theirs. And then he says, boy, I sure wish I could work with dentists like that guy, because they're all equally dysfunctional. And their numbers are all the same. The numbers are still the same. You take any business owner population, it sorts itself into a pyramid that looks like this. 1% earn high six-figure and seven-figure incomes. Do you know the profession, do you know the profession or business, depending on how you class it, that has the highest percentage of poverty in it? Anybody know? Hollywood actors. Hollywood actors. Highest profile because they're employed for short periods of time and then they're unemployed for long periods of time. Huge line down at the unemployment office. Lots of them pulling up in Mercedes, picking up 
their unemployment compensation. It's a big boon to them. They don't have to go get food stamps. You know, you get a card now. 1%. 4% high five figures. 15% okay, but barely. 60% in any business owner population. Shockingly low incomes. And keeping the doors open day to day. You would be amazed at some of the income statements I see from people you would think, somebody mentioned lawyers. I mean, that's like, you know, it's a, a license to steal money. And still, 60% of them are right here. And think of all that's changed for them. It used to be illegal for them to advertise. So the secret here is it's behavioral. It's you and me. It's not about really anything else. The other stuff really doesn't change it. What you do about you changes it. So here's like a, a secret alert. When you try and make some kind of big monetary change, five figures to six figures, six figures to seven figures, barely seven figures to big seven figures, it's never about doing more of what you were doing, running faster. It's about doing different things differently. So when you go home from a thing like this, you don't want to think in terms just of how can I do a little more of what I've already been doing or do it a little faster or get more people to help me do it. You want to think of what should I do totally differently? What did I see? What idea did I get? What piece of information did I get that will allow me to do a different thing very differently? And the other thing that gets in our way, you want to work real hard at getting rid of what I call the list. So everybody has a list of all the things they can't do in their business. And even when they acknowledge that they see it being done in some other business, it can't be done in their business. And so for you, the ones of you who have been around a long time, you know we joke all the time about, but my business is different. Four different people have given me posters for the wall of the quote, but my business is different. And so now people start that conversation with me by saying, I know you say no business is different, and I understand that my business isn't different, but, and then they proceed to tell me why their business is different anyway. All right? It's like wedged in there that they have a list of things they can't do in their business. They deeply believe that their thing is inherently, intrinsically different from whatever they see other people doing that is very successful and very profitable and may lead to breakthroughs. So every business I've ever been involved in has every business you've ever been involved in has norms. It has ways that things are done. And then you come here, somebody introduced me to their when I was taking pictures last night, somebody had their daughter with them who's just graduated and has a degree in marketing. And he said he brought her here to see 
every which way that it's done that she just was taught for four years that it's not supposed to be done, <laughs> which is kind of the truth, you know. Um, there's what it says in the textbook, and there's what happens in the real world, and there's what we're really doing, which is something entirely different. So even smart people come to me with the list. And they come into a consulting session, or they come into a mastermind group, or they come to a coaching experience, and they have their list of things that can't be done in their business. And that's a filter through which you take everything you've been exposed to in these three days and run it against. And that's very much in your way. So everything you think you can't do because your business is different can be done by doing business differently. There is, in most businesses, an establishment. So when you go to a convention, so a couple of years ago for the first time, um, I went to a national convention of authors of mystery and suspense novels. And it was deja vu to the first couple of National Speakers Association conventions I went to in the late 1970s. Just substitute author for speaker and the same thing was going on. I, whoops, my monitors just went dead. I, apparently we're still live up there. So you can see, but I can't. Oop, there we go. Um, oop, there we go. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, that's not the problem. The problem is if you're a sane, rational human being with any experience, you wonder what the next thing will be. So a part of you now is... Um, no, floor's okay. Um, so I'm standing in the back of the room, and there's you, many of you will have had this experience. This will, you will recognize this in whatever business you're in. So I'm standing in the back of the room. There's like, you know, I don't know, this much maybe of authors. And there's a panel up here on stage of agents and publishers, but mostly agents. And the agents are telling the would-be authors the rules of the road, how you get published, which completely reinforces, of course, their hierarchical bureaucratic structure. I mean, the main part of this message is always you have to be very patient, you have to grovel, and you have to kiss a lot of asses, particularly those of the people who are up on the panel. Right? And here's this process by which you must get approvals and permissions and letters after your name. And your, when you submit a proposal to the agent, the margins have to be exactly one and one-eighth of an inch on the left side and one and two-eighths of an inch on the right side, or it will automatically be rejected on and on and on and on. It is all I can do not to run from the back of the room to the front of the room and just beat the shit out of one of them, <laughs> just, just to make a point for everybody. 
and I heard the same crap when I first got in the speaking business from the, from the bureaus and the agents, same meetings, same panels, same people, right, in the 1970s. And every business has this. So every business has a bunch of people who mostly for their own agendas and insecurities and all of that are reinforcing a set of industry norms of how things are done around here. And the people who are in these 1% and 5% numbers on all these charts tend to violate all these norms. So the best homework assignment I have for you is to go home with everything you got here and couple it with making a list of every rule, law, peer idea, industry or professional norm there is for your business. Lock yourself away for a couple hours and make the master list of every, small, big, try and, try and make that list of every way it's supposed to be done in whatever field you're in. And then take everything you got and try and figure out how to violate every item on the list. Every single one. First of all, if you are successful, you will probably be ostracized from the community of the profession or business of which you are a part of. You will really piss a lot of people off. There's people still mad at me from 1979. A goodly number of them were like 10 years older than me, so they've died. But but the ones that are still living, there's some still marching around pissed off. Um, uh, Just for no reason other than I like spit in the eye of the village witch. I mean, I I listened to what they said about how it was supposed to be done, and it didn't make any sense to me, and then I didn't do it. So I told you the ad agency one. Everybody's supposed to go do free, you know, pitch meetings, and it aggravates everybody in that industry when you don't do free pitch meetings. When I started the speaking business in the late 1970s, the, and some of you belong to organizations that have ethics enforcers. Our association had, probably still does, uh, an ethics committee. And one of the things I figured out pretty quick, so the norm was, let's say I get booked to speak for you a year from now. I take that date out of my inventory, I block it for you, I put a little gold star on the calendar, A year from now, I show up, I speak, I come home, and then I send you an invoice for my fee plus all my travel expenses, and I hope I get paid. That's the industry norm. Now, it sounded just as dumb to me as it just sounded to you when I said it. I said, this makes no sense. I'm going to be the banker to IBM. This makes no sense, right? First of all, the minute you take the day out of inventory, that's my inventory, is my calendar, if I'm in that business. So I immediately began 50% deposit the day you book the date. The other half, 30 days before I show up, we pre-bill the expenses. 
And that's the way business is done around here. So big companies won't do it. Big companies did it. But it actually became an issue where it was considered unethical to be collecting in advance for services that would be rendered later. Now, this is how goofy industry norms are. Right? But your path to profit is violating all of them. So a great list to go home is all the industry norms, and then how can I take everything I got in the last three days and use it to violate every single one of them? The other behavioral thing I will suggest to you going home is about focus. This is a great book. If you haven't read it, I recommend it. It's called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Okay. Interestingly, the one I just read is the 20th anniversary edition of a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. So the original book was written 20 years ago. At the time, it was prescient, psychic. Now it is just observational and factual. Because really, that's what everybody is doing, is they are amusing themselves to death. And they have so many distractions and diversions, they can't focus. Even some people who come, so people will fly to be with me for a day. And they have paid a lot of money to be with me for a day. And they are distracted all day long. I watch them. Right? And be, some of them, because they know it irritates me, they think I don't notice that when they go to the bathroom, they take their little thing with them. And I know they're in there, in my little bathroom, on their little doohickey, checking something, texting something. I don't know what they're doing. But they're in there with their little doohickey. And they can't hide. It's a one-holer, and it's, you know, right over there. I mean, I know how long they're in there, because I'm not distracted. I'm sitting there waiting. They're checking stuff all day. They never see me go check anything. Any, nothing. All day. I'm able to focus on him all day long. He's not able to focus on me all day long. So this constant connectivity that you have been sold is necessary. That's not a new pitch. We were told when I started that you had to be instantly and immediately accessible to everybody. Didn't make any sense to me then. Doesn't make any sense to me now. If, in fact, you are going to lose a deal, you are going to lose a customer, you're going to lose a client, you're going to lose a prospect because you were not instantly and immediately accessible, you have a problem other than not being instantly and immediately accessible. You're viewed as an interchangeable commodity. You're a convenience store. And if, so there's a convenience store. I fought it until you just couldn't fight it anymore, but I now do pump my own gas. I fought it to the bitter end. I mean, I would drive, we had in our community for a long time, we had one gas station left where if you sat in one line and you leaned on the horn, somebody would actually still come out and pump your gas. 
And I went there, you know, um, for a couple of years I, on three different occasions in different cities across America. I ran out of gas trying to get to the gas station. Where, so, I mean, I fought it as long as I could. Now I'm fighting, if Carla's out of town, I go to the supermarket, so now I'm fighting it at the supermarket. We're down to one human line, right? That where you don't do it yourself, okay? They've got it down to one. And I know what they're doing. I've told the manager twice now, right? I understand, you are deliberately hiring the most retarded person you can find. <laughs> And hiring the handicapped is admirable, but I know that's not what this is about. This is, this is your last attempt to discourage the last of us from wanting a human being to do this work. I get it. And I brought a book. So, however long it takes, I am not going over there and do it myself. So I'll fight it to the bitter end. But so I do pump my own gas. So if I'm driving from my house on my little errand route that I go on, if the first place you get gas is busy and all the pumps are full, what do I do? I just drive to the next one, right? What difference does it make where I get gas? Gas is gas, right? Those guys all lost that argument a decade ago, right? Do you really want to be in that business? Is that how you want to be perceived? where if you're busy, if they don't instantly get you, they just go to the next one. See, that's the real problem. It's not the instant access. It's that you're perceived as somebody who's just interchangeably exchangeable with the next one. So the constant connectivity that you are being sold is in your way. Constant amusement is in your way. I saw a stat the other day that I think it's, I think it's age 28 to 35. That person is on average playing video games some version of an online game, an app game, a video game, an Xbox game, 22 hours a week. Some of this is obviously during working hours. Right? So they are literally amusing themselves to death. There's a place for playing games. Friday night. Not all week long. So you got to decide on that chart, 1%, 4%, see that's behavioral. And if you take all this stuff home with you, but you can't focus, you won't focus, then much of it is to no avail. And if you have people you have to protect yourself from them at the same time that you leverage them. The purpose of having people is not so that they take all your time. I made that mistake in 1981 for six months. I thought that was what you did when you had people, is you let them take all your time. Bad idea.
So the first thing to think about when you go home now is what you do about you. The second thing to think about when you go home is what you do about other people. There's, a, um, there's an old joke about the sheep herder in the field. And um, a guy pulls up in a new BMW and he's got a fancy suit on. And he gets out and he talks to the shepherd for a little bit. And he says, um, um, let's make a bet. If I can tell you in three minutes or less exactly how many sheep are in your, in your whole herd, can I have one? The shepherd says, yes. And so the guy gets his gadget out and he takes pictures and he enters numbers and he sends a signal up to the NASA satellite and it calculates how many sheep there are and it sends the thing back to his phone and he tells the guy, you got exactly 836 sheep. And shepherd says, it's amazing. I don't know how you could do that, but help yourself. And the guy loads one in the back of his BMW and the shepherd says, before you drive off, well, let's make a bet. If I can tell you exactly what you do for a living, can I have the animal you took back? The guy says, well, yeah, I guess so. He says, well, you're a consultant and you have an MBA. The reason I know that is because, number one, you showed up where you weren't invited. You, you gave me information I already knew, right? Uh, um, and you charged for doing it by taking that animal, and now can I have my dog back? <laughs> so, so when you go home, there will be people around you who weren't here. <laughs> Sometimes even if they were here and you brought them and you take them home with you, they aren't really with the program. And they will dissuade you I had a guy for years, he owned a big furniture company, a bunch of retail stores. I actually inherited him from Halbert. And he spent a lot of money every year printing a big, fancy, full-color catalog that he didn't use just to pacify his wife because she hated all his advertising and marketing and was embarrassed to show it to anybody, so he printed this thing just so she'd have six copies of it to show her friends and her mother and would not bug him. People do this often in various ways with their staff, with their peers, with their family. They surrender to the influence of people who don't know a sheep from a dog, but have opinions and interact with them all the time. I just fired a client few weeks ago, amicably. So it was a nice firing, not a we'll never speak to each other again. In fact, I got an apology gift. I would rather have had the money, but <laughs> but I fired him because he could not control the people around him. Couldn't do it. So he's paying an enormous amount of money, six figures, to have me write copy for him which then a team of people who do not know sheep from dogs when it comes to direct response copy, a team of people, half of them lawyers, half of them not lawyers, red-penciled all the copy. 
And pretty much what was left untouched was short words with vowels. <laughs> Everything else screwed with one way or another. Now, I could, by the way, have just fixed it all the way you wanted it and kept the money, but I don't need the money. And so I fired him. But his real problem is he can't control his people around him. They are telling him how things ought to be done. So you got to control the folks around you. It doesn't mean perhaps you don't listen to them. There's an issue, though, of who you listen to and who you don't listen to. But you got to decide you are in control of the ship. And you got to insist things get done. The Bezos has a great quote. This is Jeff Bezos's quote. The reason we are here is to get stuff done. If you can't excel and put everything into it, this might not be the place for you. If you haven't read, by the way, the book on Amazon, you should read the book on Amazon. It's called The Everything Store. It's a really good book. Um, so what happens to a lot of people is they come home from something like this and they have their action list and they have their six things, their eight things, their 12 things, and they have the new marketing campaign they're going to do, and they have the new price strategy they're going to do, and they step into the people around them, whoever they are, and those people fight it, destroy it, sell him against it, or slow walk it. Especially if they've already established this as a repetitive pattern. So we have it with docs all the time. So here's what happens to the dentist. How many dentists, chiropractors, healthcare folks do we have in here? Okay? So here's what happens to all of them. Okay? They go to somebody's seminar. It doesn't make any difference. They go to this one. They go to Jay Geyers. They go to Tom O'Renz. They go to Greg Stanley. Some of them take the staff. Some of them don't. doesn't matter. The staff is already determined in advance exactly what's going to happen. Because they've done it again and again and again. So Doc goes and he gets all fired up. He's got his list. He's got his action items. By God, things are going to change around here. We're going to keep stats and we're going to use scripts and we're going to do office tours. And, we're, and he comes home excited. And they know exactly how long it's going to take for all that energy to dissipate. They say to each other, if we just wait it out, everything will return to normal. In, and they know how long it's going to take. For one doc, it might be a week. For another doc, it might be two weeks of agony. But it's usually not much more than that. And so they slow walk everything. You bet. We'll start on that right away, Doc. You go fix some more teeth. Next Thursday's staff meeting. How's that? Oh, we're, we're, we're on it, Doc. We're on it like ants on a picnic. You go fix some more teeth. Next Thursday's staff meeting, he doesn't even ask about it. They've slow walked it to death. And it was premeditated 
murder. <laughs> this cannot be tolerated. What you go home to do has to get done. One of the things you'll see in the Ruthless Management book is a page that looks like this. You won't be able to read it. I'm not even going to put it. It has circles on it all around you. And it describes those circles. So we all have circles around us. We have some people who are real, real close, and then we have another layer of people that aren't so close, and so on. The closest circle might be your key associates. The next one might be your employees. The next one might be your vendors. The next one, etc. It's real important who's in those circles. Because they will eat you, slow walk you, chew you to death if they are the wrong people. So the second thing to think about is what are you going to do about the other people when you go home? That is different than what you have done every other time you've gone home and stepped back into the circles of people around you. What have you accepted before? I had a guy in my mastermind groups for, I don't know, five or six years. And a staff person who'd been with him for, I don't know, 20 years. She finally quit. And she told him, you were a much nicer person to work for before you started hanging around that Kennedy guy. <laughs> now, what she means by much nicer, they is leaving her alone to do everything as she, see, she sees fit. That's what she means by nicer. A lot of people have it with their longest standing person. With this uh, DUI attorney in a coaching group for a while in Vegas. And it wasn't even me telling him. Everybody else in the group was telling him. He had this, I call him battle axe Bertha's. They're, you know, the person in the office who's been there the longest, who's, who, who wants to be left alone to do everything as she sees fit and views anything as a threat. So if she can, she kills it the minute it presents itself. That's another employee. Um, that's an idea from a seminar. That's a consultant, a whatever. If she can, she just kills it, right? If she can't immediately kill it somehow, then she just slow walks it to death. And she has a personality I call battle axe Bertha. Usually, by the way, if you just remove them, sales go up. That's what happens about eight out of 10 times. If you just get them to take like a month's vacation, you'll see the revenue in the business go up as soon as you remove her, you know? She's like a rock in the middle of a stream that the water has to go around, take the rock out, all of a sudden it's a raging river of money. That's usually what happens, you know. But has he said to us in a coaching group, oh, I can't fire her. Well, why not? Well, she's been with me for 26 years. Well, so time, you know, to go. She doesn't have that many years left. Do you want her to spend them all working for a miserable son of a bitch like you? I mean, move her out, you know. Oh, I can't do that because some version of this. The next thing he said to us was, she's the only one who knows where everything is to get me ready to go to court. 
And you'll hear, you'll, you'll catch yourself, if you listen to yourself, and you have a battle axe Bertha, you say this same thing. Not specifically that, because you're not a DUI attorney, and you don't go to court, but you say your version of it about your battle axe Bertha. You do. You do. All right. And so he said, oh, I can't do that because she's the only one who knows where everything is to get me ready to go to court. So what happens if she keels over with a heart attack? Now what? Well, what happens if she quits? Uh-oh, now what? Don't you think maybe you should have like a little plan B? The woman's been with you for 26 years. Right? Her blood pressure's through the roof. She's old. Any day. You should like, no, right? So they have these reasons they won't get rid of their problems. I've never had this problem. I fired my mother. Okay. I have never had this problem. You are either on the team or you're off the team, you know? So you got to pay attention to what you do about everybody around you when you go home now on Monday and everybody's either getting it done or if they're not getting it done, they're getting gone. That's how you have to be. Third thing, finally, is what do you do about circumstances? It's okay up there. Obstacles. You should see what I'm seeing down here. Um, obstacles and excuses. This, by the way, is the least of your problems in most cases, is category three. Category one and category two are usually the real deciding issues. Yeah. But you finally get to category three. There's some obstacle in the way. There's some, now sometimes it's stuff that immediately when somebody else hears it, like if you say it to me, it's an obstacle only because you're leaving it in the way. But there's obstacles, there's lack of resources, there's spread too thin, there's t family issues, there's health issues, whatever. So there's two kinds of people basically in business. There's people who do pretty well when they have all the resources they need. And then there's highly resourceful people who do pretty well even when they don't have the resources they need. So I've had to saying for years, you can't really make a lot of money with money unless you have first made a lot of money without money. If you give a lot of money to somebody who's never made any money without money, they generally manage not to make money with money. Replace money with resources, any kind of resources. So if you put them in charge and they've never really built anything and you hand them the thing to run it, usually not a particularly good idea. So you have to decide whether you're going to be resources dependent or resourceful. Jay Abraham has this line, 
You have to be able to get everything you want with everything you've got. You can't be waiting around for whatever resources it is you don't have. So you don't have any money, you gotta figure out somehow how to access other people's money. You don't have any customers, you gotta figure out how to access other people's customers. You got customers, but you don't have any products, you gotta figure out how to access somebody else's products. You gotta figure out how to get it done with what you've got before you ever get to get it done with what you need to have to do it exactly the way you want to do it. So you have a choice. You can focus on the reasons you can't. And all that guarantees is you'll be in the same place next year that you were this year. Or you can focus on the resources you have and be resourceful about them. I've been saying says making excuses and making money are mutually exclusive skills. Making excuses, by the way. So the person who comes up with all the reasons why we can't do X, that's a minimum wage job. That's what that is. Because I promise you, you can go right, go right down the road to Walmart or McDonald's and hire the dumbest one in there you can find and bring them back to your office and give them the job of making the list of all the reasons why you can't do X and pay them 20 bucks an hour. They'll be perfectly capable of making the list. This takes no real skill, talent, determination, initiative, nothing. And corporate America is full of these people. GM has a company. How many of you have read Bob Lutz's books about um, car guys and bean counters and then the one after that, idiots and whatever it is, idiots and icons? If you haven't read Bob Lutz's book, you should read Bob Lutz's book. Because it, it came up, the reason it's fresh in my mind is it came up the other day. You know, GM is once again, General Motors is once again struggling. They have a new CEO, hasn't changed anything, because they have a giant bureaucracy. So you could put Jesus Christ in there for a year and you probably wouldn't change anything at, you know, at, at General Motors, because the bureaucracy would just slow walk it and wait them out. That's what would go on at GM. So GM, so I think Bob Lutz wrote the books, I don't know, a decade ago easily, about his experiences at GM maybe a decade before that. And so GM has this thing, a European car company they bought 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They, the cars have been here off and on. It's called the Opel. You know what, an, you know what Opel is? So GM owns Opel. Opal has never made any money. It's a giant drain on the mothership. Right? GM has no idea what they were going to do with it when they bought it. They've had no idea what to do with it the entire time they've had it. They have no idea what the hell to do with it now. All it's doing is sucking up money. For 20 years. And nobody has killed it. Sold it at a loss, fixed it, nothing. They're still running it. Mike Vance used to tell this story about Mike was a consultant. He came out of Disney. And he's talking to the CEO and he said, what's your biggest problem? The thing that absolutely vexes you and your company more than anything else. And the guy described it to him 
And then Mike said, well, who's working on it? The CEO said, nobody. Why is nobody working on it? We can't solve it. So we're working on everything else. Ignoring the opal in the room. See, that's waiting for resources, not being resourceful. So what you do about circumstances, obstacles, and excuses, the key is the way that sentence is structured. What you do about, not what they do to you. So these are the three things to decide when you go home. What are you going to do about the people you're about to step back into the ring with? What are you going to do about you? And what are you going to do about circumstances, conditions, the conditions on the ground around you, key part of every one of those three sentences, what are you going to do? We talked uh, years ago. In fact, I think you guys are getting... Dave, did you say something at lunch? Are they getting the phenomenon... Thank you. So the phenomenon, if you don't know it, the phenomenon actually traces its roots to Earl Langale. And a phenomenon is really about the next 12 months. Because there are people who have an experience, at least once in their lives, sometimes more than once, when they get more accomplished in 12 months than they did in the previous 12 years. They make more money in the next 12 months than they made in the previous 12 years. They have more breakthroughs, personal, business, financial, in the next 12 months than they had in the previous 12 years. Sometimes it's an event like this that is the trigger that starts that process. But what drives that process are the decisions and the behaviors in these three categories. The phenomenon is totally behavioral. On an even broader note, um, the day after Advanced Business Development Academy is Personal Modus Operandi Day, which is all about how I do things. People are very curious about it, so I'm answering every question how I do everything um, from morning until night, work with clients, run my business affairs, run my finances. Um, if you picked up one of them little yellow brochures and you weren't already registered for the event, the information is in there. It's important to have a modus operandi, a personal operating system for yourself of here's how I do things. And then everybody else facilitates your system. You don't facilitate their system. President Bush, ironically, has a great line. President Bush said, if you don't have your own agenda, others will be perfectly happy to provide you with one. I say ironically because he can't stop the cufflinks. But, but you either have a system that you impose on everybody else or you get a system imposed on you. And your ability to accelerate achievement and accomplishment is directly relational to how comprehensive your personal operating system is and how tough you are at imposing it on everybody else. So everybody's walking out of here with great ideas. Everybody's walking out of here with great information. And everybody's walking out of here having a, had a great experience. And we are all happy that that has occurred. 
But what we would really like for you to do is go home and get some great results. And that will depend on these final things that we talked about here this afternoon. I thank you all for coming. It's always a privilege to work for you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.